Good morning. It's always a huge blessing to me to get to share the word with you. Uh, I say that every time, and I mean it every time. <laughs> the uh, un- unlike the the last few messages that I have had the privilege to to do here at CBC, um, the the focus this morning is going to be maybe less on exhortation and more on exposition. Uh, the The focus in the passages that we're looking at is not really about commands and imperatives. It's about what we need to know and then how we need to respond based on that knowledge. It's really on the one that we worship, the one we, uh, the one who actually is in control of all things. And, and there, we'll have a lot to say this morning and to see about uh, just how much authority and power that one has. I'm hearing some echo here. Just Okay. Um, it's about knowing more fully who he is, what he has accomplished, and what belongs to us now and in the future because of him. And, of course, that kind of knowledge is every bit as practical and relevant as the, uh, the commands of Scripture in terms of the impact on the life of the believer. Uh, the knowledge of God defines our reality, and it tells us how we are to interpret things that happen to us and how we are to live. This message is, uh, is really a connect-the-dots kind of a thing. It's about tying a very well-known passage in the New Testament with its precursors in the Old Testament so that we end up with a more vivid and a more uh, powerful understanding of what was going on when the passage, when the events are recorded from the New Testament. Now, I've been, uh, I've been very blessed in studying and meditating on these two amazing passages, John chapter 2 and Isaiah 25, and the context in each. Uh, these are things that God intends for us to know about our Savior and our Master, Jesus Christ. He is the one who's in focus in both of these passages. And these are things that, that most definitely will affect the way we live if we're paying attention. John chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana, you all know the story. It was just read. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, the events that are recorded there in chapter 2 occurred very, very early in Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, two days after he was baptized at the Jordan River by John the Baptist and, in effect, announced as Messiah. You remember, after he was baptized, uh, Andrew, uh, who was a follower of John, uh, then saw Jesus and he, he heard John the Baptist talking about Jesus and saying, this is the guy. And so then Andrew went to his brother Peter and he said, Peter, we met the Messiah. We have seen the Messiah. We know who it is, the one who was promised. And then there's the, the event where, where uh, Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And it seems that Jesus knows the heart of this man Nathanael without ever having met him or known anything about him. And so we begin to see just the first glimpses of the of the Gospel of John laying before us the fact that Jesus is the one who was promised. Well, this passage, John chapter 2, t- 
takes that, that idea and it just really drives it home with great power. Verse 11 explicitly notes that this was the beginning of signs that Jesus did uh, and that this sign manifests his glory. It also says that as a result of this miracle, his disciples believed in him. Now, I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the belief unto salvation. Uh, I, I would say that's saying that they saw what Jesus did and they were convinced. They knew that this was indeed a miracle. He was indeed who he claimed to be. This passage says that Jesus' miracle of turning the water into wine was a sign. Now, what exactly does that mean? What is a sign in the first place, according to biblical usage? Is a sign ever an end in itself? Now, think about it. If the miracles of Jesus were ends in themselves, for instance, if the healings that Jesus performed were intended to put an end to illness and death and poverty, then he didn't do a very good job. Because he only healed and he only raised from the dead in, in limited circumstances with selected members of people. Uh, the fact is you end up with some pretty messed up theology if you confuse signs with the things that the signs point to, with the reality to which they, they refer. In fact, there are whole denominations that are built on that kind of error. No, the miracles were not God's last word with regard to illness or death or poverty or the curse. They were not ends in themselves. They were pointers. Throughout both testaments of the Bible, signs and wonders, also known as miracles, were provided by God to attest to one of two things. First, to attest to his own character and attributes so that people would know with whom they were dealing or secondly, to attest to his message and the bearer of the message, the messenger. So that people would know from whom the message had in fact come. The miracles of Jesus covered both those bases simultaneously because in Jesus' case, the messenger was also God. His miracles displayed his character and attributes at the same time that they attested to the message and to his teaching. As, re, as originating in God. Overwhelmingly, the miracles that are performed by our Lord during his earthly ministry focused on telling everyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear that this is the guy. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one of whom the prophet spoke over and over in many portions and in many ways over many hundreds of years. And this first of miracles that Jesus did was most definitely a sign. You have to understand that in order to uh, make sense of what's going on here, and especially to make sense of the dialogue that occurred between Jesus and his mother, Mary. Mary came to Jesus when she saw that the wine for the wedding party was depleted, and she said to him, very simply, they have no wine. Now, at first glance, uh, you might think that her only concern was to just take care of the wine shortage and keep the party going. But I'm convinced that she had a much weightier agenda than that, based on Jesus' response. 
It's pretty clear from Jesus' response to Mary that he understood first that she expected him to do something about the wine problem. But there's another important dynamic at play. Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In verse 4. The first part of that response, Woman, what have I to do with you? is actually a very common Hebrew idiom that clearly constitutes a rebuke. Let me give you an example. If you look back at 2 Samuel 16, a certain man from the household of Saul named Shimei publicly curses King David as he's walking through the streets of the city and throws stones at him saying, Get out! Get out! You man of bloodshed! You worthless fellow! Abishai, one of David's bodyguards, the brother of Joab, who was the commander of David's armies, says to David, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there and cut off his head for you. Well, David rebuked Abishai at that point most sternly. And he said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? Joab and Abishai were the two sons of Zeruiah. There was actually a third. David said, if this man curses and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? See, David was humble enough to to actually wonder if maybe this man was speaking on behalf of God and rebuking David for all the bloodshed that he had committed. A couple of chapters later in 2 Samuel 19, after David had had been publicly restored as king following the rebellion of his son Absalom and the death of Absalom, Abishai decided to try a second time to deal with this old guy Shimei. So he went to David again. Abishai went to David and said, again, let me put this man to death for cursing Yahweh's anointed, referring to David. And again, David said to Abishai, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should be this day an adversary to me? Should any man be put in death to Israel this day? David was forcefully rebuking Abishai and even accusing Abishai of acting as an enemy, an adversary, by repeatedly appealing to him to put this man to death. Now, I point out the whole Abishai and Shimei incident to make clear that the force of the question that Mary raised, or, or that Jesus spoke to Mary, what have I to do with you, is, is a, a rebuke. It's a strong rebuke, not a little rebuke. It's a strong rebuke. You'll find many other instances of that language in the Old Testament. It essentially means, Mary, you and I are not on the same page here. Your agenda is not my agenda, so be careful. In John chapter 2, when Jesus says to Mary, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. I believe that Jesus' point is that Mary is not the one calling the shots. He was going to do as his father had determined, not as his mother had determined. And I believe his statement, My hour has not yet come, indicated that he knew Mary's heart. He knew that she was looking for an opportunity to pull back the curtain and to show everyone in that, at that big feast, this is the Messiah. My son is the promised one, the anointed one. 
Jesus was warning her not to press that agenda. Not because it was an invalid agenda. In fact, he was just about to launch into the same essential purpose. But because God must be the one to determine the timing and the terms for his revelation of his son to the world. By the way, just on an application side, how often do you and I try to control the terms of God's agenda? I, I catch myself doing it all the time. You don't get anywhere trying to do that. He controls the timing. He controls the terms. He controls the outcome. Our place is to trust Him. By the way, my advice to the kids in our congregation is don't try at home what Jesus did. You're not Jesus. Mary's role as the mother of the Son of God according to the flesh, was a once-in-history kind of role. And Jesus' role as the Son of God being the, the physical Son of a fallen woman was also a once-in-a-lifetime role. We don't know what it was like, so let's not try. Jesus, as the Son of God, certainly had a little bit more leeway in the way he addressed his mother than you do. You were to always address your mother with respect. Jesus made it clear that he would not act based on what Mary wanted, but based on God's plan. And, of course, he said that many times in the Gospel of John. He said, everything I speak and everything I do is according to my Father's agenda. And in God's plan, Jesus did do something about the wine. And it wasn't just a little something, was it? He turned at least 120 gallons of water, maybe 180 gallons, into wine. Not the stuff you get off the grocery store shelf, the good stuff. In fact, I'd hazard to say that there has never been, nor has there, there had never been, nor has there been since, any wine of the quality that Jesus created from water on that day. The head waiter, who didn't see what happened to produced the wine. After he tasted the wine, he went and grabbed the bridegroom and he, he said, he said, why'd you wait until now to put the good stuff out? You know how this works. You serve the good stuff first and then once people are at the point where they aren't all that discerning, then you serve the, the stuff that's cheap and save some of the good back in the, in the wine cellar. And by the way, I'm not going to dive into this, but this most assuredly was not grape juice. If anybody does want to argue that point, I'll be happy to do so with you, but it'll be offline. This was, this was wine, not just, not just wine. This was really, really good wine. As with virtually everything that Jesus said and did during his earthly ministry, his words and deeds here had very important precursors in the Old Testament that explain and illuminate his purposes in the things he did and said while he was here during his earthly ministry. Precursors with which his mother Mary would have been very familiar. Mary was a godly woman who knew the Old Testament scriptures quite well. If you're not sure about that, look at 
the passage that the Catholics call the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56, where Mary, from memory, quotes repeatedly from the Old Testament, speaks of the Abrahamic covenant, and nails God's plan of redemption through her son. She knew what was going on. She knew that the prophets had already made powerful and repeated associations between God's promised Messiah and images of bountiful provision, particularly provision of fine and abundant wine. So even if Mary wasn't quite on the same page with Jesus on this occasion, I'm convinced that her concern went a lot further than just keeping the party going. She wanted her son to be recognized as God's anointed. And I have absolutely no doubt that Jesus' purpose in addressing the matter of the wine the way he did was the beginning of many proofs that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah, the King of kings, who would reign on the throne of David, the Savior of God's people, spoken of long beforehand by the prophets. So let's look at those Old Testament precursors, one in particular. Go to, flip over to Isaiah 25, and we're going we're gonna to look at several parts of this passage and the, the, the context of the passage. But I'm going to read again for you uh, verses 6 through 9 that, my brother Kevin just read. And I want you to think about it with John 2 in mind. Again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, every time you see that, that is Yahweh. That's I am. That's the covenant name of God that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, Who am I to say, sent me to free, free your people? And God said, Tell him, I am has sent you. Verse 6, and Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this, on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, Yahweh. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. This is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Notice in verse 9 that, that it's as if the people who are participating in this banquet are just becoming aware of who it is that they've been waiting for, of who is the author of their salvation. He's before them and they're recognizing him as who he is. These verses are speaking of a time when God will restore his people and prepare a lavish banquet for both Israel and for all peoples, all nations who are called as his people. And the location of this banquet, if you go back to chapter 24, verse 23, is Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem. It says... Yahweh of hosts in 24-23 will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before all his elders. So the mountain on which this banquet will take place is 
in Jerusalem. Now, throughout this broader section of Isaiah, there's a repeated interplay between warnings of fierce judgment and God's promise of marvelous restoration and provision after the fierce judgment. That juxtaposition of judgment and deliverance is woven throughout the Old Testament prophets, and it has its foundations way back in the Pentateuch, particularly in Deuteronomy. Immediately before the banquet passage in Isaiah 25, we find in Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 23, the prophet's declaration that a terrible day of global, worldwide, indeed universe-wide, judgment was coming. 24.21 says, So it will happen in that day that Yahweh will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. This passage like a multitude of other Old Testament passages, is messianic. That means it is speaking prophetically about God's promised Messiah, about His coming in judgment and His coming to reign over His creation. According to numerous prophecies throughout the Old Testament, the one who will reign on Mount Zion is Messiah. Turn to Psalm chapter 2 for just a moment. It's a fairly well-known psalm, and it speaks very specifically about the one who is coming to reign on Mount Zion. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed... Anybody know the Hebrew for that word anointed right there? Mashiach, Messiah. The kings of the earth are going to come together in rebellion against God and against God's anointed, against Messiah. And then it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And here's what he'll say. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. His anointed, his Messiah, the king of kings. That's the one who's going to be ruling and enthroned on Mount Zion. You with me? Okay. So when you go to Isaiah 25 and it talks about, Isaiah 24, talks about this judgment and about about. Yahweh reigning on Mount Zion. You're supposed to make a connection here. And we'll go back to that in a minute. By the way, the rest of Psalm 2 is about telling those kings of the earth that they had better do homage to the sun lest they perish in the way. They'd better recognize who they're dealing with. The outcome, the culmination of God's cataclysmic judgment of the whole of heaven and earth will be the installation of His righteous king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Once God has finished His fierce judgment against His own disobedient people, Israel, His attention is going to turn to all who have taken a stand against His Messiah. And He will make a clean sweep of them in the valley of Megiddo 
and over the whole face of the earth. Then his promised Messiah, Jesus, will reign in glory on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. If you know Handel's Messiah, you know those words. Those words come from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. This is the context in which the banquet passage in Isaiah 25 occurs. As with so many Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah sees and presents events as if he's looking at them from a far distance through a telescope. He doesn't always parse out which occur exactly when. He just sees all the future events together. There are elements in this prophecy of both the messianic kingdom and the eternal state. So you'll find, if you go down to Revelation, you'll find that there's some things spoken of in these in Isaiah 24:25 that are addressed in Revelation 19, leading up to the coming of our Lord, and then there are some things that are addressed in Revelation 20 and 21, referring to what happens after all is done and God has established His eternal state. Now let's look carefully at the vivid imagery that's presented in this banquet passage in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. It says, The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, will prepare a lavish banquet. That's, that's a big deal. <laughs> for, all his peop- for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow. Now, um, I'm a big fan of chunky peanut butter, but I'm not sure I'd care for chunky wine. Uh, and the first time I read this, it, it looked like it was saying that there's chunks of wine, choice pieces. But, of course, the phrase choice pieces with marrow is talking about another part of the banquet, which is the meat part. Literally, those words mean fat things with fullness. <laughs> in, in today's diet-minded culture, that may not sound all that great, but back then... This was talking about the really, really good uh, portions of the meat. Marrow and fatness in Old Testament are images of abundant provision and of highest quality. Psalm 63, for instance. In Psalm 63, verses 3 through 5, David, in one of these great praise psalms, says, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands to thy name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. You get the picture? This is, this is wonderful, beautiful for situation. This is, uh, this is a, a, he's describing a, a condition of wonderful blessedness. The idea here and in Isaiah 25 is that the banquet that the Savior of Israel will set before his people will include the choicest of foods, the finest wine, the best of everything. Everything about the image speaks of abundant provision and well-being. Now, that image of fine-aged wine in this context is very intriguing because of the context. Let me ask you, what does it take to produce fine-aged wine? You tell me. Pardon? Time is the one, that's the one I hear the most out here. Okay, takes, takes good soil, takes a good vine, takes, you know, the best grapes produced from that vine. And then you crush the grapes and you put them in a container. 
takes a good container. And then most of all, it takes time. It takes time. Uh, I started kind of looking into that. It's kind of interesting. Isaiah 25, verse 6, the word that is twice referred to, twice translated as aged wine or refined aged wine, literally means wine on the dregs, wine on the lees. The lees are the, the dregs, the particulate, the solids that settle out to the bottom of the barrel as the wine ferments and ages. The dregs themselves are bitter. You don't want to mix them back in with the wine. But leaving the wine on the dregs is how you arrive at wine that has the very best flavor. And you have to leave it there for a long time. That image of wine on the dregs, wine on the lees, is the same image that's used in Jeremiah 48 with a negative connotation. And flip over there for a minute. Keep your finger in Isaiah 25. Look at the next, the next book, Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. The passage is referring to Moab. And it's saying... The, the prophet Jeremiah is saying Moab is about to be judged. And Moab is complacent. And they're not expecting this judgment, but it's going to come anyway. And look at, at the wording that Jeremiah uses. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed on his lees. It's, it's using a metaphor of Moab as wine. Neither has he been emptied from vessel to vessel. Nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor. And his aroma has not changed. It's a vivid picture. It's saying, Moab is very complacent. He hasn't been moved around from place to place. He's, had his, he's been stable. He has had permanence. He has had stability. He thinks that everything is going to be great and it's going to continue that way. And it's not. So he uses the image of fine-aged wine as a metaphor for complacency. At ease since his youth, undisturbed, not emptied from vessel to vessel. Now, if you look at both sides of this vivid metaphor, you might say it's good for wine to be at ease and undisturbed for a long time, but it's bad for men to be at ease and undisturbed for a long time. It makes wine really great. It makes men really complacent. And to the point of this passage... If you want to end up with the finest aged wine, you have to take really good grapes, crush them, put them in quality barrels or wineskins, and let them sit undisturbed for a long time. If you even so much as move the barrels around during the aging process, you stir the dregs back up and you make the wine bitter and you, you mess it up. So how does that understanding of the process for arriving at fine wine add to our grasp of what's going on in John 2 and Isaiah 25. Well, think about it. Fine wine is inherently associated with permanence, stability, remaining in one place for a long period of time. In turn, that carries with it the whole idea of shalom, of peace, of blessedness, of, of having all the threats taken care of and being able to enjoy uh, a blessed condition for a long time. And here's where it gets real interesting in relation to the context of Isaiah 25. During the events leading up to the bank banquet passage in Isaiah 25, Israel will not be producing or enjoying wine. Not even the cheap stuff without the chunks. 
As we've seen, this restoration passage occurs immediately after a passage declaring the coming global, fierce judgment of God against the hosts of heaven and the kings of the earth. It will not be a time for winemakers to produce fine-aged wine. The God whom this world has either dismissed as non-existent or believes has turned a blind eye to its sin will visit the earth with a consuming fire of judgment that none will escape except ultimately we who are the chosen of God. Israel and Judah, along with all the inhabitants of the whole earth, will be uprooted, displaced, fleeing from terrors occurring on every side. Isaiah 24:17 says, Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. If you put all the prophecies together regarding the unparalleled judgments that God will pour out on the earth during the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon, you find that roughly three-fifths of mankind will be wiped off the earth. That's billions of people. The experience of all mankind during that time of trouble will be the opposite of shalom, the opposite of peace, stability, and permanence. It will be universal judgment in which no one and no thing will be unaffected. Look at how Isaiah relates the image of wine to that time of shaking, of judgment that comes before the banquet. Isaiah 24, verse 1 through 11. Behold, Yahweh lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. There will be no distinction between people. won't matter how well off you were before this all started or how lowly you were. Verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for Yahweh has spoken this word. And then it says, The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Now look at what it says in verse 7 and following. The new wine mourns. The vine decays. All the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourines ceases. The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished, driven away. Wine is consistently associated with rejoicing and gaiety and well-being. But there will be no rejoicing during the outpouring of God's wrath on this world. All joy will turn to gloom and the gaiety of the whole earth will be driven away. So here's where, here's the question. Who, in the midst of such a devastating condition of judgment, will have the wherewithal to produce the fine-aged wine that God will provide to his redeemed people in this promised marvelous banquet? 
Who will have that kind of stability, that kind of permanence, that kind of peace? Well, it certainly will not be Israel. Israel, like all the nations, will be running for cover from one, from one place to another during the time leading up to God's restoration and salvation. The answer, of course, is that the one who has the wherewithal is God, specifically Messiah. Just as he did at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee in the first miracle he performed during his first coming. This is a vivid picture that we must not miss. Messiah, Jesus, is the one who will prepare a table before us in the presence of our vanquished enemies. He is the one who will put an end to the curse of our sin. He is the one who has prophesied in Isaiah 25.8, will swallow up death for all time, will wipe tears away from all faces, will remove the reproach of His people from the whole earth. Jesus is the one. That's what He proved at the wedding feast at Cana. The first and most foundational thing that Jesus accomplished in His first miracle was to demonstrate that He is the Messiah promised of old. He gave a a preview of the banquet to come. He will judge the nations. He will be the salvation of His covenant people. He will undo the curse of the fall. And He alone will restore to His chosen ones a condition of peace. Pervasive peace, permanence, stability, and abundant provision. Indeed, He will be our peace and provision. Tied to this declaration that Jesus is Messiah is the assertion that Jesus is Yahweh. Back there again in Isaiah 24, verse 23, it says, Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem his glory will be before his elders. Verse 6, Yahweh of hosts, the same one, will prepare a lavish banquet for his peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. At Cana... Jesus declared that he is the one who will prepare that lavish banquet. And he gave the world a preview, as I said, of the great banquet to come. He is the same one who is called Yahweh in Isaiah 25. He made that very clear later in John 8, when he was having this discussion with the Jewish leaders about whether they were children of Abraham or children of Satan. And... Jesus said to him, Abraham looked forward to the coming of my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. And the Jews said, you're not even, you're not even you know, 40 years old. How would you know about Abraham? How would Abraham know about you? Maybe he was 50 years old anyway. He was in his 30s. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus, it doesn't even make sense grammatically if Jesus was not appealing to the name of Yahweh given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And Jesus said, I am. Beloved, let there be no doubt, Jesus is Jehovah. There are many other convincing proofs of that fact in Scripture. So again, the first thing that this miracle proves about Jesus and the one that we've spent the most time developing is that he is the promised Messiah, the great I am. Now, I want to look at some other things that this miracle demonstrates about Jesus, all of which flow from that fact, from that reality. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the miracle declares quite clearly that Jesus is sovereign 
over creation. He turned six stone pots full of water into 120 gallons of the choicest wine. He did it in an instant, and guess what? He didn't even need grapes. And you know what? He didn't need water. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul says, Jesus was the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness. The rock from which sprang forth abundant flowing rivers of water that allowed Israel to survive during their wanderings in the desert. The manna came from heaven. The water came from the second person of the Trinity. That's not an allegory. That is not an allegory. That is a reality. That is how Israel survived in the wilderness. Jesus, Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, was there with them, sustaining them. When Jesus said (laughs) to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water or actually of the water of the well, will thirst again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He knew whereof he spoke. Israel had survived for 40 years on that water. (laughs) And we will survive for eternity on that water. We will thrive for eternity. Jesus didn't need grapes. He didn't need water. He is Messiah. He's the great I Am. He is absolutely sovereign over His creation. Does that mean something for us in the day-to-day? You bet. We'll talk about it a little bit more here. But the third thing I want you to see, okay, the first is the miracle showed that Jesus is Messiah and God. The second is that Jesus is sovereign over His creation. The third is He is sovereign over time. In an instant, he turned water into fine aged wine. Now, with all the advances of science over the last couple of thousand years, man has absolutely no mechanism for causing fermentation to occur instantaneously. Winemaking is an art for patient people because it requires lots of time. By the way, one quick aside about the time issue. In the discussions about evolution and creation, the question is often raised as to whether God and Scripture ever created something with the appearance of age? Here's your answer. Right here in John chapter 2. And if God wanted to create the universe with the appearance of age so that the light from stars billions of light years away had already reached the earth, you think he couldn't do that? If you do, you need to fix your concept of God. Jesus proved with this miracle that he is not subject to time as we are. He can completely sidestep the time element of a physical process or any other process and produce the end result immediately. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. You all know this passage. Um, I, won't, I won't read the whole thing because we're short on time, but essentially Peter is addressing the, uh, the mockery of men who will come and say, where is the coming of of this one you're talking about? Uh, ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything just continues the way it always had. God's not involved in this creation. I'm not worried about judgment. Just like in the Old Testament when they said peace, and there was no peace. I'm not worried about judgment. 
Peter says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the all that's spoken of there is the you. It's the chosen of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is absolutely sovereign over time. He is not subject to it. Fourthly, this miracle demonstrates that Jesus is able to provide for any need. Just as with the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 that came a bit later in his earthly ministry, this miracle demonstrates powerfully that there is no limit to Jesus' ability to meet our needs, even in the here and now. And there's a few additional observations before we talk application. There's a few additional observations about this miracle that I want to mention. And if if some of this sounds a little speculative, that's fine. Just take it, think about it, do with it what you will. First, the water into wine issue. Water is a provision that's necessary for life, right? You've got to have water, you've got to have basic food, you've got to have shelter for survival. Wine, fine aged wine, on the other hand, is a provision of abundance. It's the icing on the matzah. God's provision in Christ is an abundant provision. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it overflowing. Abundantly. So, Jesus provides abundantly. That's another thing the miracle showed. Uh, the Lord's Supper. We'll talk a little, for a moment about the connection with the Lord's Supper. The very next thing in John 2, after Jesus turned water into wine, was the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem at the Passover. So the wedding feast occurred at the time of the Passover. That's when Jesus was announced, right leading up to the time of the Passover. There were three Passovers during Jesus' earthly ministry. And I encourage you to look at, look at what happened around each of those Passovers. It's very, very important stuff going on in each case, and this is no exception. Later, at the third Passover of his earthly ministry, just before he was betrayed into the hands of the Jews to be crucified, during that upper room discourse, the time with his disciples, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with them. And he told his disciples that the bread represented his body given for them. The wine represented his blood poured out for them. For us, the wine represented his blood. Now, if you go back and tie that to the sacrifices, by the way, I believe that the table of of our Lord's Supper is the culmination of the entirety of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, along with a whole bunch of other things. The reason we we just need this one memorial is because it ties it, it just it ties up it. it uh, culminates all of the memorials from the Old Testament. It's an exceedingly powerful image that we, that we partake of every week. Leviticus 17, speaking of the sacrifices, says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. You didn't give it to me, I gave it to you. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. For, and in verse 14 of Leviticus 17, As for the life of all flesh, its blood is with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. There are two two connections here. 
connection of the wine with the blood and the blood with the life. Neither of those connections is incidental or minor. They're woven throughout Scripture. Jesus brought both of those powerful connections into focus in the Lord's Supper. I believe, because of the association of wine with blood and blood with life, that when Jesus created that wine at Cana, that miracle was, among many other things, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of our Lord and of the resurrection life that we will enjoy because we are the latter fruits of His resurrection. And you know what? If you go to John chapter 2 for a minute and look at the very first words of John chapter 2, what are they? And on the third day. I don't think that's coincidental either. Now I said at the outset, I'm going to wrap up here, I said at the outset that this message was more expositional than exhortational, more focused on what we should know about Christ than on specific commands. But God intends, of course, that everything he has revealed about himself and his word will have a profound impact on the way we think and speak and act. I am absolutely convinced that there is no disconnect between theology and life. Okay? So let's consider how these things we've just seen should affect us. When our lives are in upheaval, whether by our own doing, by the actions of other people, or by God's direct engineering, and I think it all ultimately comes down to that, how does that impact God's provision for us or His sovereign control over that provision? The answer is not at all. God is not affected by the craziness and turmoil that surrounds us in this fallen world as fallen human beings. No matter what we're going through, He continues to faithfully provide. He is never surprised. He is never perplexed. He is never confused. He is never discouraged. When both heaven and earth are in the thick middle of the shaking that will befall this earth just before Christ returns to set things straight, I'm sure that many who have turned to faith in Christ during that time of trouble will struggle with grievous thoughts that things have spun hopelessly out of control. Indeed, nothing that you and I have ever faced will compare. But at the very moment during that, in fact, at every moment during that time of judgment, the people of God will be one moment closer to the banquet to end all banquets. Your destiny and mine, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, has been prepared from long ago like fine aged wine. Jesus said in John 14, verse 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is like a patient winemaker. The salvation and the banquet that he has laid up and accomplished for us has been in the works from before the foundation of this world. And knowing what God has laid up for us certainly affects how we respond to the things we encounter in this life. As Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. But what about the here and now? It's great to know that things are going to end very well for us. 
because we, because God's exaltation of his own name ends up being to our eternal benefit as his children. But don't we need God's involvement and provision here, now? You bet. Every second. And we have it. Every second. Paul said to the Athenians, In him we live and move and exist. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Beloved, if Jesus Christ were for one millionth of a second to withdraw his power from his creation and from your life, everything that you see would simply cease to exist. Jesus demonstrated at Cana and in a multitude of ways during his three years on this earth that he is perfectly able to provide for your needs, for our needs, instantly, regardless of what our eyes see, regardless of what the situation looks like. (laughs) 5,000 people on a mountainside with nothing to eat, and he takes a few loaves and fish, and he turns it into food that fills him to, to, to being completely satisfied, and then there's 12 baskets left over. Is there anything any need that you will, not, you will ever have, that I will ever have, that God cannot meet? No. That means we never have to be anxious about provision for ourselves and for those we love. That should affect the way we live. I know there are some in this body, we heard from our brother John this morning, years looking for work. Is a tough place to be. But I know that he will testify to you that God has never been unfaithful. God provides for his children. Knowing that our master and savior is not subject to time, the last point here, knowing that, that he's not subject to time means that we don't have to concern ourselves with the timing of events that affect us and and those that we love. If you feel worn out because a difficult time in your life seems to be just drawn out with no end in sight, remember who it is that's sovereign over time and who's not. If you've been looking for work for what seems like an impossible period of time, if you've been struggling year after year with the same issues in your marriage or with your children or with your parents, if you're in the midst of an illness that looks like it's not going to be resolved anytime soon and you're in for a bit of suffering for a long time. Remember, God is not constrained by time and he is at work for his, his eternal glory which ends up being for your eternal good because you are his treasured possession bought with the price of his son's blood. You're his inheritance. That's what he calls you. Again, I go back to Paul in Romans 8.18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. God knows what we can take. And he's the one who gives us the grace that we need for each day. And he knows what he's doing with us. Above all, remember that you and I serve the King of Kings, the promised one, the one who will come again to subject all things to himself, the one who will swallow up death for all time, who will wipe tears from all faces, and who will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. It will be said in that day, as Isaiah says, Behold, this is our God. (laughs) 
for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Loving Father, we look forward (laughs) to to that day. We look forward to the day when our Messiah returns and he sets everything straight. We look forward to the day when he wipes away our tears. When he puts an end to the curse for eternity for us whom he has called to be his own. When he lays before us a mirrored supper that will make every other banquet look like nothing. We look forward to the return of our Master. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.